0: all this nonsense, all this spin, they can't handle the truth. War Room Battleground. Here's your host, Stephen K. Bannon. It's Monday, the 25th of July, year of our Lord, 2022. You're in War Room Battleground. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us for live. I wanna go to uh, Matt Schlapp. Uh, Matt Schlapp's the head of the American Conservative Union that puts on CPAC just back from Israel. Matt, before we talk about CPAC Dallas, uh, give me a I think one of the most powerful things CPAC's done over the last couple of years, and we were honored, I think, to be in your first one in Japan, I think it was in 2017 over Christmas or right before. That's You've right. really taken CPAC out throughout the world. It's pretty amazing. Talk to me about CPAC Israel.
1: Yeah, it was pretty amazing. We've been talking about it for a long time, for since before the uh, uh, Chinese Corona. And uh, and we hit the ground uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, We spent a full week with an American delegation and went to Tel Aviv. Twenty five hundred Israelis in a country that doesn't tend to really do rallies around their politics. I'm told that it's a bigger crowd than Netanyahu would get uh, at the height of his popularity. And as you know, he's trying to wage a comeback uh, in November in that important race in Israel. And, you know, we brought a couple of American ambassadors who were part of the Abraham Accords. And we brought Matt Whitaker and Rick Grinnell and others who worked in the Trump administration. And it was just a boffo uh, night. It was a great event. And I cannot tell you how many uh, people we ran into who were in shock that we actually pulled it off. And we pulled it off with some great partners on the ground. And for me, Steve, it's always really cool. You know this. I remember walking behind you uh, in Tokyo at that first uh, CPAC on the ground in Japan. And You know, uh, there's nothing like an American hitting the ground in a strong allied country, the outpouring of love and affection. You didn't even get that many tough questions from reporters. And we had a similar (laughs) experience in Israel. And these kids would come up to me on the street. We had one thing we captured in video. They were kids who lost their parents or their brothers or sisters to terrorism. And they came up to me. We spoke. With a bullhorn, and you know, just uh, uh told them we're 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 in solidarity with them in this fight against radical Islamic terror. So it's a pretty special trip.
0: Talk to me about given President Trump's, you know, moving the embassy, uh, the Abraham Accords. His focus. The first trip we took was obviously go to Riyadh first, Jerusalem second, Rome third. What is your sense? Uh, from the Israelis right now, of of what's their sense of of the Middle East? We're gonna have Major Galvin on here in a second about his book, "A Few Bad Men," about this horrific incident in Afghanistan back during the war. But what is since we're not actively engaged in Afghanistan, we're somewhat in a, in a, in Iraq, but it's a whole different, you know, it's all it's a whole different not just mindset with this regime with the Bidens, but it's just a different. Feels like things are very different over the Middle East right now. They're talking about iran on the on the final stages of a nuclear weapon. Yep. What's your sense from the Israelis of what that what do they feel about American leadership right now?
1: Yeah, look, there was a hit and run in Israel. Joe Biden had to go to Israel because he wanted to go to Saudi Arabia to beg for oil. Uh, an American president going to any regime and begging for fossil fuels, when we won't allow our people to drill for fossil fuels here is really has the Israeli people in a state of shock. Um when Donald Trump went to the region, you remember that famous sword dance in Saudi Arabia, you were there. And you know the the point wasn't 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 that everything the Saudis do is right, but there was a respect for the Trump administration for Donald Trump, which they do not have for Joe Biden. Even the fist bump seemed to have gotten Joe Biden a, he caught a flu. And you know, and and he goes to Israel, he does a few things that were more obligatory in nature. And from my conversations with people on the on in the know on the ground there is people left very worried that the American president is just out to lunch. They just didn't feel like he was very engaged and with it. And that's quite a statement because Joe Biden actually has really never been too with it.
0: Yeah. No. Talk to us about you're, you've done these regionals. I know you're going to go back to the, since uh, the CCP virus is abated, we're going to go back to the regular CPACs in Washington, D.C., starting in 23. Um, but t- talk to me about CPAC Dallas, CPAC Texas. Uh, is this is this now where Texas gets to compete with what happened in Florida? The one in Florida is so intense and so big. <laughs> talk to us about what's coming up August 4th through 7th, because we want everybody, we want all the war and posse in the region to show for this. Tell, talk to us about it.
1: You got to go and if you use code word war room and go to our website at conservative.org, you're going to get invited to a special uh, event with uh, the host of War Room, Steve Bannon, who's going to be one of our featured speakers awesome. at the cattleman's ball. And look, we went to Florida the first year because remember Steve, they blamed us for spreading coronavirus. They spread me personally because we had one victim, uh, who, uh, turned out to be just fine, but they blamed us for an international spread. And then they canceled us in the next year. They didn't want us to even have uh, CPAC in DC. They said we would kill people. So we said not on our watch. I mean, not <laughs> since, uh, if Ronald Reagan can come 13 times to CPAC and we've been through wars and <laughs> We've right. been through recessions. We can have CPEC. So we had to go to Florida. We had a great event, even though the mayor there was pretty rough in Orlando. And then we decided, look, there's two mega red states that are driving the economy and driving politics. And it's Florida and Texas. That's where the center of gravity is. It's no longer Washington, D.C. It's moved south. And really, there's almost like a red capital and a blue capital. You can name your pick for these big, blue, broken, bankrupt blue cities uh, that the, that is the kind of the center of gravity for the left. But for us, you know the only big cities that are functioning in this country are in red states, and so you know people on our side have to start to ask themselves: Are they going to continue to grovel at the feet of these big blue city mayors who literally want to shut them down on a moment's notice? And that's what we fear doing anything in a blue state.
0: Tell me about for our our audience. I remember, we go to conservative. I think it's conservative.org, and you, you put in the promo code. War room, you get invited to a special event. We want everybody in the Tex, in the Dallas area, and North Texas and the surrounding areas to come. It's going to be very special. We're going to be there for the couple of days, and we're going to be broadcasting, doing special events. We want everybody in the posse to show up. Uh, you've got Viktor Orbán, which I think is blockbuster. Yes. You did already did a CPAC Hungary that they're still they're still they're still shaking about it in, in Europe. You're bringing Orbán to Texas, which is going to be amazing. Who else is going to be there, uh, Matt?
1: Oh, yeah. It's a who's who. Obviously, President Trump will be uh, our final speaker. We got Sean Hannity coming who hasn't been at CPAC for a number of years. We got, I think, everyone's favorite member of Congress, Jim Jordan, uh, is going to be there with us Ted Cruz. This new Myra Flores, we're going to have a lot of these candidates, J.D. Vance, a lot of these Republican candidates who are going to help us take back uh, the majority. So uh, you don't want to miss it. Go on to the website, get your tickets. But more than anything else. Send the message to the national media that there is a conservative uprising, an American uprising going on across this country. I think CPAC is the beginning of the big red wave. It's in August. We're just months away from that big election in November. If we don't have a big win in November, all the socialism just gets bigger and Nancy Pelosi feels emboldened. So let's push back and let's prevent it from happening. This is the first step of two. Get back these majorities and then take back that White House.
0: I think that the evening that you close President Trump's speech, I think, is 90 and a wake up to the to election day. I think the Sunday's 100. And I think when Trump speaks on the 7th, it's 90 in a wake up. So that's how intense this is. CPAC will be the springboard. Matt, your social media. How do people get the book? It's still a must read. Uh, how do people get the book and how do people track you on social media?
1: Thank you, Steve. They can. Uh, unfortunately, all I ever remember is my Twitter account, which is at M Schlapp. Uh, and they can go to desecrators.com to get all my other handles uh, for all the other platforms. Although I spend most of my time on Twitter because I seem to annoy people the most. You can go to the you, desecraters.com. You, you, you,
0: you, 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 you come coming a little hot on Twitter. Your Twitter accounts one <laughs> to follow. You come in a little hot on just a Twitter. T- just, a t- just a tad hot on Twitter. Not quite Trump level, a little, but just a
1: t- tad hot my wife says i should say a hail mary before i send every tweet and i have to say i haven't always followed that advice
0: well you should matt thank you so much look forward to having you back on show one everybody go to conservative.org put in promo code worm i need you everybody to show up at at cpac cpac texas matt thank you so much for joining us
1: thanks for joining us in uh, dallas steve it's just around the corner
0: really excited thank you sir uh I'm going to bring in Major Fred Galvin for this amazing book. I want to bring in my co-host for this hour, uh, Brian Kennedy. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. I couldn't think of a better guy to ride shotgun with me on this. I've got here very specially because the New York Times, I I think in their mind they were going after Claremont yesterday in the Sunday paper, but uh, it's an extraordinary article. I want to get into more detail later, but thank you so much for joining us here, Uh, Brian Kennedy. From American Strategy Group, one of the smartest guys around. We've got. I, I had to have it here for Galvin, and then later we're going to have this Tina Peters situation out in Colorado to really get down to about this what's happening with the machines. And Kennedy, you're you're the smartest guy about this. So, sir, thank you so much for uh, so honored for you to join us in the day. We're going to deconstruct the New York Times and Claremont Institute, sir.
2: Well, thank you, Steve. And and uh, I just got to tell you, with all due respect to the co host last week, there's only one Steve Bannon. And I'm so glad you're back. Today. I had people calling me from all over the country, ready to chop her in to wherever you were to rescue you. So it, it's just great to see you back in the war room.
0: <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And that is the guys did a great job, but it's, a, of course, we add our own special spin and this is why I got Kennedy to be my co-host today to shout that out. Okay. Uh, uh, I want to bring in major Fred Galvin, United States Marine Corps retired. Uh, Major Galvin, I was able to start for the War in Posse today. And, and I got to tell you, I'll be honest, when I first got this book and people had told me about it and I saw Zero Hedge and, I, and I, I got a copy and went through it, or before I got it, I said, is this a work of fiction? Is this like a Hollywood, you know, someone's going to be in a major film as a work of fiction? I said, no, all this happened. And I said, how did I not know that? Given uh, We stayed pretty close to this. And I asked a bunch of people and they go, wow, we didn't hear about that. This is an amazing story. The book is a, a few bad men. It's an extraordinary work about the way the system works. It's got the obviously the courage and the valor of our troops, but it is a Kafkaesque nightmare. I mean, your hands will break out in a sweat when you see what goes on. So just take us back, walk through what happened here, and 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 then I want to get into why it was suppressed. But but just tell us who you are. What was this unit, your deployment to Afghanistan? What happened? And just walks it. And I I don't want to give the outcome, right? The decent, because I want people to buy the book and actually read it. Major Galvin.
3: Yes, Steve, thank you. And uh, I hear you've got questions. I know you want answers, and you and your listeners can handle the truth. So the reason I wrote the book on a few bad men, uh, it is a nonfiction story. Uh, Unlike uh, a few good men, this is something that. You don't want it to be true, as you had described. This is not just about the combat action that our Marine commandos in the very first Marine Special Operations Task Force deployed into Afghanistan and conducted. We were blown up, shot at. Uh, Then they started the Taliban launching an information warfare campaign against us. That took uh, the role immediately, 20 minutes after the ambush, and the BBC um, saying that we killed women and children. We expected all of that. We expected the enemy to fight us in a complex ambush with sniper fire, creating obstacles. That was what we rehearsed. And we conducted a very violent counterattack and killed the enemy. Uh, We also expected them to spin the truth. That's what terrorists do. Uh, What we did not expect is, as you had described in your prior session, that the Marine Corps we knew realized they did not ever want to have an elite, an elite. But we did not expect them to dogpile us with 45 criminal investigators, four prosecuting attorneys that came in and they had a written operation order. This was written down that they would go to both objectives, the one in Afghanistan and interview the Afghans, as well as where we were located where, when they kicked us out of the country and put us in uh, Kuwait. That was what they were going to do. Instead of doing what they said in their order, they went entirely to Kuwait and interrogated, dog-piled all of us for two months, and then they got on the scene in Afghanistan two months after the crime scene and took the Afghan's word at face value. So at that point, uh, I was relieved of command. I was sent home, there was a total of seven of us who were falsely accused of mass murder. They said we killed 19 and wounded 50. This was the largest number of alleged Afghan civilians killed throughout the entire war in Afghanistan by machine gun fire. And I was commanding officer of this Marine Special Operations Task Force. Uh, So the convening authority at that time was then Lieutenant General Jim Mattis, who was in charge of all the Marines in the Middle East. Uh, He had all the sworn statements of the 30 of us who were on the patrol. He had my polygraph uh, that stated that I didn't see any civilians killed, that we didn't fire any civilians. So all this did was continue to antagonize General Mattis as a convening authority to use even further extreme sanctions against us to include a gag order. They called it a protection order, Steve. So this was basically a shut us up. And not just myself and they eventually named myself and one other Marine officer as the two co-defendants in the trial. But uh, they even said the two of us, if we said anything or our defense attorney said anything, that they would be disbarred and we, were, we would be punished. So this is what happens in places like Tehran when they want to uh, use censure, which is not, I mean, our, thank God we have a first amendment that applies to all Americans, but this type of information warfare is allowed against our enemies when it's approved. Uh, we can do this type of information operations, but we are it's prohibited to do against American military personnel, by our, by our own military personnel. It's a prohibited, uh, strictly forbidden, to be used against the people of the United States. But okay. then when we went into this courtroom, go ahead, Steve.
0: No, no, okay. I just, I, I want to make sure we set the stage here properly. You, you, um, this is not a bunch of reservists or National Guards. You guys were kind of hand-selected. The, the Marines have this history of Marine Raiders and, and Marine Force Recon. That are kind of the elite inside the Marine Corps, and the Marine Corps has always had this mentality we don't have a special we don't have green Berets we don't have special operators we don't have Navy seals because every marine, every marine is elite. They start a special operations group under you these are handpicked uh operators that know what they're doing correct i mean they're they're they're, they're, they're they didn't pick any anybody that just came off the uh the bus out of uh, out of paris Island that's correct. these are experienced warriors.
3: These weren't just the best of the best from Force Recon. These were Marines who, since the war had started in two thousand one, had been deploying in combat at, in Force Reconnaissance units to Iraq and to Afghanistan. I had previously done uh, a tour as a Force Recon platoon Commander across the Pacific prior to the war starting. I was an instructor at the Marine Corps version of Top Gun at the time that when we entered this ambush, I was just a few months shy of my nineteenth year in the Marine Corps, and the majority of those who were in in that ambush that we were in were the most experienced, not just in our in our unit, but from across the Marine Corps. We did hand select. And that's similar to what the the Commandant of the Marine Corps back in 1944, with a stroke of a pen, who disbanded the Marine Raiders, said it's not in the best interest of the Marine Corps to have an elite within an elite. He said hand picked units are bad for morale. Uh, and they disbanded the Marines. It went back in the Marine Raiders. They sent them back to uh, the Marine infantry to go on and fight in Okinawa. But in our case, uh, you also saw this data point from what I just described in World War II. It was repeated in 1987 when they formed the U.S. Special Operations Command. We were the only, just as you had described, Steve, we were the only service in the Marine Corps that did not provide forces to the Special Operations Command, where all the U.S. Army Rangers, Green Berets, Navy SEALs, Air Force Special Operations, they all assembled into one unit. Uh, Marine Corps said we'll, we'll abstain, we, we are an elite with an elite. Donald Rumsfeld, on his uh, second tour is uh, Secretary of Defense in 2001, right after we were attacked, ordered all the services to increase the capacity of Special Operations Forces. They all did except for the Marine Corps. Marine Corps tried to appease it by sending a few officers down to the Special Operations Command. Uh, Rumsfeld got further angered. Then the Marine Corps started to to slow roll it with an official proof of concept for two years to even see if we could compete with the Green Berets and Seals. That dragged on for three years. Then guess what? Uh, The Pentagon was wrong when they thought Bush 43 would not get reelected. They thought he'd be like his father, a one-term president. He got reelected. Rumsfeld was kept on as the Secretary of Defense and ordered the Marine Corps to activate a component within the Marine within the U.S. Special Operations Command. Uh, so that, let's just call it what it is, Steve. It was basically an arranged marriage by the Godfather, Rumsfeld himself, between the Marine Corps and Special Operations Command. Uh, that was actually on the 24th of fe- February 2006. That was officiated by Rumsfeld, who was there at the activation ceremony. And we were basically the love child. We were the very first special operations task force to be selected, trained, formed, deployed, and engage in combat against the enemy in Afghanistan.
0: And uh, what's what's bizarre logically, you would have gone to Iraq because we were doing the surge at the time. And this unit was absolutely perfect for Mm -hmm. what the surge was doing. But they divert you and send you to Afghanistan. Once in Afghanistan, they've got the coin you know this is a thing of coin this counterinsurgency which is you know it's winning hearts and minds and you've got commanders there and i'm not criticizing them but they're they they they're not looking for guys to engage in, in combat right they're looking for essentially people that are essentially diplomats with rifles is that the way to say it
3: yes and to even show another data point before we go that there to afghanistan the marine corps intention was what they actually did. They they had us do a entire pre deployment uh, workup uh, for six months before we deployed with the regular conventional Marine Corps and under the leadership of Colonel Sturdeman, the Marine Expeditionary Unit commander. And we deployed on the USS Baton on the ships. That's a that was their goal to keep us again under the Marine Corps wing. Don't let us slip out like the Navy SEALs that eventually broke loose and got off the ships. Uh, the Marine Corps wanted us working for the conventional forces. And as, as you well know, the defense military industrial complex, all these generals, the no, the no general left behind program involves generals. Like you've all seen general Mattis, uh, general, uh, Austin, where they all go. Austin came from Raytheon, Mattis went to general dynamics. So they all want to appease and they, they realize like, I better do what the secretary of defense says to some degree. And that's why the, General Brown, in charge of Special Operations Command, did pull us off those ships and he sent us into Afghanistan, right there in the Torbora Mountains at the base of the mountains, uh, right at the Afghan-Pakistan border. And that's where we uh, conducted 30 patrols. And on the 30th patrol, uh, our mission, Steve, was to conduct aggressive combat operations across Regional Command East. And that's exactly what I set out to do with our Marine special operators, uh, and on this mission on the fourth of March, we were blown up, and then we received fire from both sides of the road. It was nine o'clock in the morning. Well, hang, hang, hang,
0: hang, 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 on. hang on, hang on. I just want to make sure. I, I just want to make sure people understand the Afghans. These guys have been fighting this war a long time. The Taliban. This was a comp, what would you call a complex ambush? IEDs, crossfire, uh, defense in depth. I mean, they had had this. Do you think they had a leak on intelligence of know that you guys were coming to set the ambush?
3: Yes, you're uh, teasing the book there, Steve, and I appreciate that. So <laughs> we had made forward, you know, coordination earlier that morning with uh, an army unit, right? Assigned immediately on the Afghan-Pakistan border. This was an army military police unit. And they were out there in their vehicles doing rehearsals. And some people think, well, that's good. That's what you're supposed to do before you go out on patrol. But they were doing it broadly daylight in the, the valley right at the base of these mountains surrounding it there in the Khyber Pass, <clears throat> which in all honesty is, was stupid to do it in broad daylight, telegraphing that you're about ready to go on patrols. their immediate action and drills consisted of when they'd say contact right, so they'd announce what the drill was to the enemy that's, guess what is up in those mountains? Observers, uh, observing the military camp. Uh, so they'd see them do these drills, and the Army soldiers would duck down inside the turret and yell, run, drive, drive. So they were basically rehearsing that if they got attacked, they would duck and run. Uh, that patrol was heading out that morning. Uh, we headed out before them, and we went further south up into the Torbora Mountains to uh, do a visual mounted reconnaissance of routes that we could later conduct uh, reconnaissance patrols in the in the mountains where we were assigned to conduct our patrols Uh, eventually the the army did take uh, additional time to leave the base and that allowed us to finish our reconnaissance of the mountains and then we entered the road heading into this village this first village on the afghan side of the uh, the border there the afghan pakistan border let's have your audience consider uh, this is basically a can be compared to an Amazon fulfillment center. So at that time we could not go into Pakistan. So they would get foreign fighters and they'd fully radicalize them in Pakistan. And then they'd move them across the border because we Americans just paid for this, the first paved road in Afghanistan. So they they weren't coming across the mountains where we were told to conduct reconnaissance. They just bribed the border guard. They came right across and then they'd end up at this basic logistics note. Think Amazon fulfillment, like I said, so they would link up there with their handlers and the Taliban would protect that with suicide bombers. And on that morning, we knew we had the information that there was four suicide bombers. We even knew where they were located. So but this uh, counterinsurgency strategy that both Petraeus and General Mattis both authored and came out in a joint doctrine that was implemented in late 2006, in October 2006, when we fell under the NATO rules of engagement and uh, so instead of using information to go and target the enemy like we had done for years in combat operations in iraq no now we had to go actually conduct a tribal leader engagement sit down have chai discuss this over hopefully this taliban controlled village would give us some intelligence but uh that was this kind of ridiculous uh, but that is what these leaders they didn't ever want to go and win the war they just all they wanted to do is go fight the war, spend money, spend lives. But then all these weapon systems that are sold by the military industrial complex to the military, well, those generals who are on those boards make lavish salaries, get flown in on the Learjet right into Reagan National, International Airport, and, and they got their return on investment. Let's keep this war going forever. We had won it up until 2005. Now they went into the process of losing it.
0: Major, just hang on for one second. We'll take a short commercial break and we'll return. I got Major Fred Galvin. The book, it reads like a thriller, a uh, great war story. It'll keep you on the edge of your seats. And I'm not going to give away the ending. Major Fred Galvin joins us on the other side in the war room. Okay, welcome back. When you read this book by Major Galvin, just out from Adam Bello and the team at Post Hill Press, a few bad men, um, you are haunted by the question: How does this country find men like this? It is unbelievable the 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 valor, the courage, but also the strength of character to go through this Kafkaesque nightmare, where you know what you did was right, you know what you did was for the good of your country, for the good of your men, for the good of your unit, for the good of the pride of one of the most famous uh, fighting um, uh, groups in world history, the United States Marine Corps. Uh, and you just see what's going on. And I don't want to, I don't want to give that part away. Uh, this is a book. And, and when I say you must read it, particularly everybody that's interested in national security affairs, everybody's interested in the military, and everybody's very concerned. The America First part of our audience is very concerned about these constant employments. Look, Major, I got to bring you in here because my daughter was 101st Airborne uh, and deployed to Iraq. And I got to tell you, the, when she was gone, you, you, you sit there and you understand, you pray every night, you just understand it is in God's hands. You absolutely have, particularly a control freak like me, you have absolutely no control whatsoever. But then you read what happened to you, and I got to sit there. I just sat there and go, my God, for the grace of God, this did not happen to Maureen or her unit or something like this, because it, it's absolutely it's almost like a Hitchcock thriller. That's why I don't want to give away the end. The twists and turns of this thing are amazing. The question I have for you, do you feel that your country or parts of the Defense Department stole a big number of years of your life? Because I don't know how you went through this and, 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 and finally to be, well, I don't want to say what happened. I'm not going to say what happened, but do you think that you got that you had, uh, that you had part of your life stolen?
3: Yes, so the seven of us who were falsely accused, it did destroy portions of our lives. The the health we had a uh, the co defendant that went went on trial with me ended up getting cancer. Uh, he survived but had to have severe surgery, radiation. His senior enlisted who was a complete physical stud. Ended up uh, getting diabetes and nearly passing from that. Uh, but the divorce, the the financial ruin. Uh, This is something that is, I wish, was never something that could happen even to our worst enemies. Uh, When you have your own government put a gag order on you and use this information warfare to paint a picture that you murdered, mass-murdered civilians. uh, Because they kept moving, and I don't want to give everything out uh, in the book, but they continued to move the media out of the courtroom during all not just defense witnesses with exculpatory evidence, but uh, the character witnesses. So all the media heard was this one-sided false narrative that we mass murdered these individuals. Now the jury heard everything and they acquitted us. But what happened in the press for seven more years that I continued to serve? And you you made a nice statement about us that uh, we were this elite band of warriors, but some people probably question our judgment because the request that myself and the rest of us was to go right back overseas and fight. And that's what we did. Uh, And I continued to serve for seven more years until I hit service limitations, but then they continued to attack us. Even the day I retired.
0: So the press just, I'm going to have you back on later in the week to go through it more. Do you have any media or speaking engagements that people can can know of? The book is a few bad men. You can get it on Amazon right now. In fact, if you order it, it'll be there the next day. A few bad men. If you love the military, uh, and particularly if you are America first, because we cannot allow this to ever happen again. What what happened to these uh, these heroes, uh, Major? Are, are there any book signings or is there any? Do you have a book tour coming up? What, what is going on with the rolling the book out?
3: Yes, we have a few. Uh, When I attended uh, the University of Texas at Dallas, I'll have an upcoming uh, one to the uh, MBA students and uh, the alumni there at Dallas on the 8th of October. Uh, We also have one at the Marine Memorial Hotel on the 13th of October, and then we have uh, two of them in Oceanside, California just south of Camp Pendleton where I'm stationed for twelve years. Yep. And that will be at the Barnes and Noble in Oceanside as well as the Brown Theater on September eleventh,
0: two thousand twenty two. I'm talking to my, I'm talking to my producer. I think we've got to figure out how to get you to CPAC and come and join us at CPAC because you'd need to do a book signing there. Uh, Major Galvin, what is also you. your social media? How do people how do people how do people find uh, find you on social media?
3: On Twitter and Facebook, they can find it at FC Galvin. I'm also on LinkedIn, Fred Galvin. And they can look at the website at uh, www.commandoshow.com.
0: We're going to have uh, Major Galvin on a subject to his schedule later in the week, because I want to talk about the senior command and the rot that's at the Pentagon right now, uh, which comes through in this book, A Few Bad Men by Major Fred Galvin, United States Marine Corps, retired. Major, thank you very much for joining us
3: honored. Thank you very much, sir. Pleasure.
0: Thank you, sir. Okay. I want to bring in Brian Kennedy. Brian, you're the, you're the founding chairman or the, the, one of the founders of the Committee on the Present Danger China. It, it's mind boggling how this happened. But since I'm crammed for time, uh, tell me about the Claremont Institute. The great Claremont Institute has been so much of the intellectual thought leader. And really you've been one of the great guiding lights there. The New York Times went after it hard over the weekend, but I, when I read it, I called you. I said, "Brother, this is like a paid advertisement." Tell me, tell me about the, tell me about the Claremont Institute and the New York Times coming after you guys hard.
2: Yeah, well, it was actually the Washington Post. Just a, a slight correction there. Oh, it was that the post? Was was that the was, post? Uh, okay, fine. Fisher, yeah, yeah. Mark Fisher and Isaac yep. uh, Stanley Becker, and these are two two you know, oh wow, left wing journalists who hate Trump. They hate the Trump movement. They don't like the idea of conservative intellectuals fighting back against, uh, you know, all the political forces and all the establishment. It's one of the reasons they're going after you so hard, Steve. It's not just that it, that you helped win the election in 2016, you continue to fight and the, the media simply despises that as does the left. In this piece in the Washington Post, they go after the Claremont Institute, which was really at the forefront of making the argument that President Trump's victory was important. And it was important because politically he was realigning the country behind the principles of the American founding, limited constitutional government, and the idea that America is a good country. That's one of the things the media really despises about both president trump and the claremont institute in this article and so in it they go after our colleague who's been on the war room many times john eastman and john of course as we know had come up with the strategy for dealing with the theft of the election on january 6th and so they're, they're they're trying to use the piece to discredit john to discredit president trump to discredit the claremont institute but they simply it simply doesn't work in a way because the Claremont Institute stands for American freedom, American liberty, and a defense of that. And the one thing I think they don't like about the Claremont Institute the most is that when you talk about conservatives, I know CPAC is coming up, but when you talk about conservatism, what are we conserving these days? Well, at Claremont, they're they're conserving, if anything, the American Revolution. And the principles of the american revolution and the principles of american liberty and those are the things that are just so powerful so much of conservatism today is just about you know working the washington process and proposing these laws and that laws and cutting taxes and it's been dubbed conservatism inc the thing about claremont it really was a revolutionary and is a revolutionary organization and that's one of the reasons that so many claremont folks went into the Trump administration with the ambition of dismantling the administrative state that, that you yourself have talked about.
0: No, I tell you what, the what you can tell the anger of the post of the WAPO writers is how could intellectuals be attracted to Donald Trump and what he stands for? I mean, because they've always made Trump is just this barbarian, right? How could they have these really smart guys? So they have to be corrupt. They have to be on the payroll. There has to be something twisted about them. But that's what's amazing. Hang over a second, Brian. I want I to do this with you here because you've been so great and as an intellectual leader about Stop the Steal. And by the way, the New York Times, I got that one right. The New York Times uh, over the weekend had the, the New York Times magazine was Stop the Steal right on the cover with a beautiful, beautiful black and white photography. It's all throughout. There's their cover story. Uh, you've got Tina Peters. You've got everybody. In fact, Tina Peters, is, is profi- uh, Mastrion and Tina Peters are a big part of this story. I want to bring in now Jeff O'Donnell and DeRaza Smith. So, Jeff, explain to our audience. Take like five minutes and make the best case because it's kind of confusing. You put up any chart you want. I think Memphis has got your stuff. It, it, make a case here so people can understand why Tina just didn't get beaten because they had somebody that faked it like the, 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 she was MAGA, but she wasn't. And and why do you say it's the machine? So make the case, make the case for Tina Peters. Uh,
4: thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, in looking at the data that came out of the primary, and I want to point out that it took us months to figure out what data came out of the, uh, the originally you of know, the 2020 election and what it meant. And now we're basically able to see that in real time now in the primaries. And from now on, uh, the, the data that we had to work with, which is largely the data that was in the election night reporting, it, it shows a very unnatural pattern of voting. And what I mean by that is that if you look at the, uh, the election by what was reported on election night, the the, the gap between the, the, the uh, candidates, in other words, the number of votes between candidate one and candidate two, between uh, Anderson and Tina Peters, for instance, in, in her race. It was fixed uh, within the first couple of updates during the night and then remained remarkably the same the rest of the night. Uh, these are mail-in votes. They should be arriving fairly randomly when they're brought in. Uh, and and this is not the only race. Other races uh, in the state show that, that same thing. There's a good example. Uh, you can see that the, the, the difference between the blue and the red line, the blue is uh, Anderson and uh, the red is Tina Peters, uh, the, the number of vote difference between them was established within the first two or three updates and then maintained in lockstep uh, the rest of the way. And the fact that that happens isn't, isn't natural. And it was the first thing that, uh, that I spotted that led me to believe that there was, there was something wrong, especially since it happened in many races. Now, if you could bring up the, uh, the, uh, Lauren Boebert race, I'll show you what is a more natural, something that we look for. Uh, you'll see when that comes up that, uh, in that race, you see a more, uh, you know, you see the blue, which is Lauren Boebert, and the, the red, which was uh, her, uh, uh, the other candidate, uh, it, it sort of increases over time, as you would expect in a, in, in a, a not close election uh, like that. You know, the, the, the ratio between them changes, or the, the, diff- the number of votes between the candidates, you know, it changes during the night. Uh, and that is what you expect to see. The fact that we don't see that in uh, the Senate race and uh, Tina's Secretary of State race, and also the uh, Governor primary race, uh, is is definitely something that that is is alarming and needs explained.
0: Uh, DeRaza, you want to you want to jump in here and give your perspective on it? For a go back to uh, Jeff.
5: Sure, thanks. So I've been looking at a little um, a, a de- more detailed at the county level. And when we look at the county level, we've been able to get the cast vote records, which is how the votes are counted, ballot by ballot over time. And um, when we when we look at that, I sent in some uh, some graphs about that, and um, you can see as the as the votes uh, come in, some things that are really interesting with uh, the ratio between <laughs> Hank's... So we, we we can talk about that, but the, what, there's a there's a vote between Hanks and um, and uh, 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 um Hanks and O'Day for the Senate, and Tina Peters and Pam Anderson for the Secretary of State, and uh, then um, Lopez and ganal for the Governor, and. When you plot out the ratio of votes, you would expect that the people that were supporting the America First candidates in one race would support the American First candidates in another race. But we see an extreme uh, delta between those two. So some people are coming in and voting for the America First candidates at the beginning of the race and then not at the end of the race and vice versa for the other races so that they end at the very same ratio and it looks like the candidates had the same amount of support when in fact when you look at how it accumulated over time it's not the case
0: let me go back to uh to jeff for a second Uh, jeff is if this is uh the um if uh if uh this is uh the is this your pattern recognition if this is the best you've got or this information you got why can't you go into court with that, and 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 force some judge or go to court and make a case with lawyers that this should give you some sort of injunction or TR or something to stop the process, so that you then have some time to try to get organized to go back and have a hand ballot count. I mean, what, what what evidence besides these graphs and the and the and obviously the anomalies as it looks like in the in the patterns of how the votes came in? Uh, I mean, what more do you have than that, or is that basically it?
4: Well, in my opinion, what you just heard is, is two different ways of describing uh, the things that weren't right, uh, that don't look right in that election. One through the election night reporting, and one through the cast vote record that comes right from the county itself. In my opinion, this should be enough information to get a temporary restraining order uh, to give people time. It's only been a few weeks now since that election. Uh, and there's a very short window that they give you to, to try to uh, come up with, with proof and uh we of course we can't make up data as much as we'd like to uh we have to use what we have and what is available and getting this data but, takes but time. but
0: but hang but hold up, but hold, but hold, but hang up this is what i'm saying with what DeRaza has at the county level and what you've shown do the lawyers not think that's enough to go in and make a presentation and say hey all we want to do is slow things down here so we can get into it and actually take a look at it? i understand that tina's trying to raise money to I think the deadline's tomorrow, as she said on the morning show, to be able to raise $236,000 in order to get, and it's got to come in donors in, in uh, uh, $1,250 200, $1, increments, which is tough, that you yeah. have to, uh, that if she doesn't do it tomorrow, it goes away. So, so why wasn't the information you had enough to go into court and try to get a judge, at least to get some media exposure and get a judge to focus on particularly what DeRosa has?
4: I'm not privy to all of the uh, the machinations legally. Uh, in my opinion, it should have been done. I thought that uh, I, I actually, in, in my opinion, I thought that it was happening and it may still be happening. Uh, it, that would be, you know, I, I would approach it both ways uh, simply because you never know what sort of a judge you're going to run into and what it, other problems it, you it, have.
0: hang, 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 hang hold, hold it, hold it. Let's say you walk in. And I'm going to get to Draza in a second. Let's say you walk in. We're in court today. You're in front of a judge. And it's one of these hurried things. you got to get in. You're trying to get just a restraining order or a TRO or an injunction to stop everything in place. Give me your best argument without pointing to any grass. You're just sitting there in the docket. What's your best argument to the judge? The judge, we need to look at what because of these anomalies. What's your, what's your best case?
4: My best case is, well, you have to say, you have to admit that there are these anomalies, uh, that occurred. Uh, there are other anomalies in that the, uh, the you know some internal polling uh, that they have was was very very different than the the result that happened. But also, I, I think that what you have to say is. But hold it, hold it, but hold it, but hold it. Uh, uh, hang, uh, hang on, hang
0: on, the, ha- hang, hang on, hang on. But the internal polling is not going to count. Particularly, well, I, I understand I, internal polling understand on a that. on a primary for a Secretary of State in a state could be so far off. As to be things. So that's what, but tell me the evidence. I understand there's a crisis of confidence, but what's the evidence you're going to tell the judge that we need an injunction to stop so that we can get in there and spend days, weeks, or months, however it's going to take to get to the bottom of it? What are you going to tell the judge? Is it the pattern recognition you've got could, in, the, uh, in these charts?
4: If I could talk to the judge, I would tell him it, it is the patterns in this chart, and I would relate those back to patterns in the 2020 election, which are similar, which, which showed fraud then. To me, that's enough of a probable cause to to push the brakes on this thing and make sure they get it right.
0: Uh, DeRaza, you've got 60 seconds. Make your case to the judge, ma'am.
5: We are seeing the exact same things that we saw in the 2020 election. When we look at the cast vote records from the machines, we see that the initial votes start with a very heavy preference for the one for the candidate that was um, not not the pref not not expected to win, and then we see it rise in ratio over time towards the candidate that. Would have been the, uh, expected to win, but they never—they never do win. But there's never any step back for preference for that candidate that started out with such a heavy ratio, even though the votes are are the majority of the votes are mail-in, which should be a random opinion of the entire county. So that kind of uh, yep. statistical segregation is very Perfect. odd and when you get the same shape in a Democrat or Republican that you get in a Republican to Republican primary
0: very okay uh draza give real quickly give your social media how do people find out more about what you're doing and to get to the bottom of this where do they go
5: Hi, you can find me on telegram and truth social at lady draza and um I, I am posting the majority of my research and studies there
0: okay we're gonna get that uh jeff o'donnell how do people get to you i'm gonna have you back later in the week but how do people get to you sir
4: uh, I've, I've, all of my uh, research is usually out on uh, uh, megaraccoon.com, M-A-G-A-Raccoon.com. And I'm also on Telegram under A Lone
0: Raccoon. A Lone Raccoon. Okay, we're going to get this all up on the social media right now. Uh, Brian Kennedy, thank you. Brian Kennedy, your social media, how do people track you, sir?
2: Uh, Brian T. Kennedy on Getter and, uh, and on Truth Social.
0: Brian Kennedy, uh, you and Claremont came out pretty well. WAPO, Jeff Bezos, Amazon WAPO didn't lay a glove on you. In fact, I think it's a a paid advertiser. You ought to put that up on your website. Sir, so honored that you came on and helped me out this hour. appreciate it. Well,
2: tomorrow bang, morning Steve's at 10 o'clock, 20. we're going
0: to light it. Thanks, brother. We're going to light it back up in the war, and we'll see you back tomorrow morning at 10 a.m.